0: Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk, where it's all about real talk on big topics. We're doing a retrospective today. We're going to look back at some really good episodes from the past year, some good lessons learned, some really great advice given, and some amazing guests. So I've chosen chunks and hunks from I think six or seven episodes maybe. There's a lot of great stuff out there, so it's hard to cut it down, but I hope we covered a mix of some of the more fun and lighthearted stuff here as well as some of the more serious stuff. So, you know, we like to run the spectrum of um, serious to superficial here. So I think we got a good sampling of some of the guests that we've had this year. Want to just go through who you're going to be hearing from so you know what's what as you listen. The first excerpt is from an interview with Shannon Lore, who's the founder of Factory 45. It's a company that helps sustainable fashion companies get off the ground. This was episode 199 and it was called Fast Fashion is Killing Our Planet. Every time you scroll down on your social media and you see an ad for Shein, I want you to run. I want you to avert your tiny little index finger from pressing the button and shopping. And here is why. The amount of waste and damage being done to our planet from fast fashion is truly astounding. And this is one area where I don't want to be preachy, but I do think that we can all, myself included, make small improvements to do less damage. So we talked in this episode about rethinking some of our impulse purchases that are on the cheaper side, how to shop more sustainably sustainably and how to make sure that the consumer decisions you're making are not negatively impacting anything. The second one is an excerpt from episode 188, How Did Roe Get Overturned? This was one of the the most listened to episodes of the past year, and with good reason. I think we all felt a bit of a shock when the Dobbs ruling came out from the Supreme Court, um, essentially stripping the right to the, the nationwide right to abortion access that we all had previously come to take for granted this of course is a really hot button topic and when we did this row series which this episode was a part of Earlier in the year. Uh, The aim wasn't to change people's minds, but to maybe look at the opposing perspectives in a way that wasn't overly triggering or difficult. Um, I think I've been pretty candid about where I stand on this issue. I am pro choice, but the coverage that we did on this, I'm really proud of. I think it spanned um, from the informational to, in some cases, the emotional. And I hope I provided over the course of this. I think it was like a three or four episode run. Some really good perspective on why people think what they think. And if you believe one thing, what, um, you know, what could be happening next? So this was with Dr. Philip Munoz. He's the founding director of the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government at Notre Dame. He is an associate professor of political science and a concurrent professor of law. This episode was all about how Roe got overturned in the first place. What chance we have of seeing legislation passed that actually protects women's health care. And the road ahead when it comes to pro-life versus pro-choice. The next one is an excerpt from episode 183, the conversation about school shootings and safety. I wish we didn't have to have. Again, another heavy issue, but one I really feel that parents need to be informed on. The guest is Dave Benson, who is a threat assessment and security expert. We talk in this episode about the media potentially playing a role in these school shootings and the three things you need to ask your school about the way they're set up for safety. So if you wanna get some really Good practical takeaways for the questions you should be bringing back to your school board or your principal. Please listen to this full episode. We're also hearing from Dr. Whitney Bowe in episode 191. The title of that one was Good Glowing Skin Starts in Your Gut. You probably know Dr. Bowe from social media. She has a massive following on both Instagram and TikTok. And her work really centers as an MD around educating people about what she calls the 3D approach to skincare, essentially, how What is happening in our insides, i.e. our gut, impacts how we look on the outside, i.e. our skin. So in this episode, we talk about why gut health is so important. We talk about even tips for raising kids to have good gut health. And we also talk about her line, which supports skin from the inside out and the small steps you can take to have great glowing skin. She is just one of my favorites. You're also going to hear an excerpt from episode 197. It's called Don't Run from the Sun. The guest here is Matt Maruka, the founder of Raw Optics, which is an eyewear company. And... I will go out on a limb and say this will probably be um, an excerpt and an episode that not a lot of people will fully maybe um, agree with, and that's okay. Um, Matt is an advocate for healthy, measured sun exposure. Um, I remember I put this episode out earlier in the year, and I got some blowback because there, um, understandably, is... um, a whole dialogue about skin cancer and protecting ourselves from the sun that is equally important. Um, but the way that this issue is discussed in our episode is very nuanced. And what we do in this episode is break down the benefits from the, of the sun and why we don't really want to run from it entirely. He has some really fascinating research that he references about the way that sunlight impacts our mental health, but also the very important physical mechanisms that are turned on when our skin is exposed to sunlight. When our eyes are exposed to sunlight, and these are mechanisms that cannot be replicated by anything else. So in this episode, we talk about um, some compelling reasons you might want to get some measured safe sun exposure. I'm gonna stress that so I don't get any hateful comments on social media. No one is telling you to go out and burn. And also, how our ancestry impacts our tolerance for sun exposure. This is one you should definitely listen to the whole episode as well. Next up, you're gonna hear an episode from, or, I'm sorry, an excerpt from episode 200 with Rachel Sobel, the founder of Wine and Cheez-Its on Instagram. She is like meme queen and just one of those really relatable, fun mom accounts that I love to follow. Um, this is this is so fun. I mean, this episode was like hanging out with a friend. Um, We run through all of the expectations that women, especially moms, have on them and how her memes and her comedy work sort of aims to break down some of the more challenging and difficult parts of motherhood. She also shares a really funny story about how she was around someone who was like talking shit on her within like a five-foot radius and didn't realize she was there. The mean girl thing and how she handled it. It's really funny. So that was from episode 200. And the second to last excerpt you will hear is from episode 208, Delay the Smartphone. The guest here was Larissa May, founder of Half the Story. And this one changed the way I parent. And here is why. For a long time, I had been asking myself and my husband and I have been talking about when the best time to get a smartphone for our kids is. And after speaking with Larissa, I have settled on ninth grade. And there is compelling research as to why. Um, so I will let her explain in the full episode. If you want to go back and listen to that particular um, nugget of information, she has some um, pretty interesting research that she references about why that age is perfect and it has a lot to do with the development of the brain in general but in this particular clip you're going to hear us chatting about celebrities talking or not talking about the plastic surgery that they do and specifically the role that social media plays on the mental health of our children. Um, so again, this is one that if you want the true, true deep dive, definitely go back and listen to it again. It's episode 208. And, um, but I wanted to include this in here because if you are anything like me, this will really give you some, um, good information on how to make the important decision of when to introduce tech into your kid's life. And the final excerpt is from episode 177, 40 and a facelift with Dr. Laura Devgan. Dr. Devgan is a plastic surgeon based in New York. She's also a famed, I want to say Instagram and TikTok famous, um, but she's a social media famous doctor whose really subtle, amazing work has earned her hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers. Um... Dr. Devgan has an approach to plastic surgery and beauty that I think is really compelling. She is the kind of doctor that does work that doesn't look like work. Um, We go through in this episode all of the trends that she's seeing in plastic surgery, why she says BBL is like the fast lane, the fast track to a saggy butt in your 50s, why you don't want to take fat from other parts of your body and shoot it into your butt. Um, It's just not a good, not a good thing, apparently. And um, in this particular clip, you're going to hear us talk about the procedures that she is seeing become more popular and why some of her clients are asking for some of these bigger procedures at an earlier age, i.e. 40 and a facelift, which is where we got the title of the episode from. So I will link all of the full episodes in show notes. But in the meantime, enjoy this look back at 2022. (laughs)
1: And I think that, you know, it's really the brands that I work with to help them launch. They are all sustainable and ethical fashion brands run by independent entrepreneurs who are the ones starting and having those conversations. So much of the education for the consumer comes from the actual brands, the smaller sustainable fashion brands who are willing to. Talk about it on Instagram. Why it's important. Why sustainable fashion may cost more. Um, why it matters. Why it matters to the planet. Why it matters to who makes our clothing. All of those things that, like you said, you may not be thinking about when you get dressed in the morning.
0: Yeah. What is the key step in convincing a consumer that it's worth investigating? Sort of the history of their of their garment. Because I would like like we like we've already said that I think if people knew more about the impact of the clothing that they were wearing, the things they were buying, they'd be more inclined to at least try more. But do you find that that's part of your biggest challenge is the education component? And how do you get that word out?
1: For sure. Um, Well, it's funny. I think it started with, you know, we see sort of like this progression. It started with food, right? We saw organic food and that became more mainstream and people have an understanding of why it may be important to think about where your food comes from comes from and what you're eating. Um, Then it went into kind of beauty and beauty products, um, shampoos, hair products, all of that stuff. And then now I think it's finally sort of getting into fashion and our clothing and why that matters. But it really, I honestly think it's word of mouth, it's social media, Mm -hmm. and it's just starting to think about it in a different way. That little like one thing you may hear, one thing you may read can start a trickle effect.
0: So what you do is essentially a person with an idea for a fashion line comes to you and says, okay, Shannon, this is my idea for, I don't know, a line of really cute little black dresses. Um, And you take the concept and Factory 45 essentially brings that into fruition, but with all of these sort of ethical guidelines leading the way, right?
1: So we start with a overview of what it means, right? What does it mean to be a sustainable fashion brand? It can it can mean so many different things. I always say there's no such thing as perfectly sustainable. Anytime you're making something new, it has an impact. So where can you, along the way, You know, improve your supply chain, improve the clothing in in a more sustainable or ethical way? And where can we start from the beginning? And so that's one of the first things that we do in the Factory 45 program.
0: So let's talk about that. How does a line who works with you look different? How are they kinder to our planet?
1: I think a lot of times it starts with the fabric. So thinking about more sustainable fabrics, natural fibers, organic cotton, hemp, linen, those are going to be just naturally be friendlier fabrics in the long in the long game because when you think about polyester
0: yeah okay. well that's what I was going to say how explain how they're more yeah accurate.
1: so when you think about polyester you know it takes 200 years for polyester fabric to decompose in a landfill it is that's the end game you start with polyester being made of petroleum of oil wow. so from the, from the beginning to the end, um, polyester is a very, very really any man-man's synthetic fabric is very, very detrimental to the planet. And and then you talked about even in the intro, the microplastic shedding into the ocean, like all along the way it's, we could talk about how you absorb it into your skin, you know, like you're mm-hmm. absorbing plastic into your skin when you sweat. Um, there was a actually a viral TikTok that just went, um, and it was about uh, synthetic underwear and how that is the, the endocrine disruptors go, being absorbed into your skin so just it's problematic across the board natural fibers is one way to sort of start it goes back to starting with it to just go on you know your let's say you're shopping on an e-commerce site you're on someone's uh, brand's website you go to the product description Go, go there first. Look at the fabrics. It will say what the fiber content is. If it says 100% polyester, 100% nylon, 100% spandex, maybe you want to rethink it. You know, go see if they have any fabrics or uh, products that have natural fabrics. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing you can look for is when you think about the manufacturing, you know, there is so much... Um, clothing that is made at the detriment of the people who are actually sewing that clothing, the brands that are proud of their factories are going to talk about it on their website. If there's no transparency there, then I don't know, are they hiding something? Can you email? Can you can you post on social media and say, hey, where are your clo- clothes made? Um, and then I think it, the third thing is thinking about the cost per wear. So Yes, fast fashion is cheap. You can get a dress for less than ten dollars at Zara, you know, but are you going how many times are you going to wear it? Can you invest in a more classic, less trendy piece that you're going to wear for years and years to come? That's going to hold up. It's not going to fall apart. Um, so I would say those are the three things to think about.
0: I've heard some other experts weigh in on this and say that the Dobbs ruling is atypical in the sense that, practically speaking i.e when the rubber hits the road this essentially has the effect of removing rights from women even if it's only in certain states Has there been any other um, ruling by the Supreme Court that has the has had the same sort of practical impact and do you agree with that assessment that even though the Supreme Court is saying okay look we're just um, we're just looking at the Constitution and we're saying what it does give us the right to decide and what it doesn't give us the right to decide at the federal level and we're just kind of, saying that, um, do you agree with that argument or do you disagree and why or why not?
2: Well, I mean, really you can't, the, the fundamental, fundamental question is, is there a right to procure an abortion in the constitution? If you think there is such a right, then uh, you think Roe is right and Casey was right and Dobbs is wrong and that you've lost a mm-hmm. right. If you think, no, there was never a right in the constitution, then you say, no, there was, there was never a right in the constitution the court made up a right um, in 1972 and it reaffirmed that made up right in 19, uh, sorry, 1973 and then 1992, but there never was that right in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, in a way you can't avoid the question, um, does the constitution actually protect a uh, right to an abortion? And I, I think this is the way I tell my students I mean, people would disagree. Um, What we want the Constitution to say is different than what it does say. Right. Um, And I think it's too easy for all of us to say, well, this these uh, bundle of things, A, B and C, are really important to me. Therefore, it must be in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Um, We're a democratic republic. Actually, most things are not in the Constitution and they're protected or not based on democratic votes
0: from what I understand, there are different ways and and each Supreme Court justice sort of um, approaches the interpretation of the Constitution differently, right? You have the, I I don't know what the exact terms are, but one, you kind of stick to the text and two, it's more interpretive. It's it's interpreted to the modern world. I think my question and a lot of people's questions sort of from our perspective is if we see the Supreme Court evolving and moving with the times in regards to contraception, in regards to gay marriage and putting things in place that allow people to have the freedom to make those decisions, I'm I'm still struggling to understand the point of differentiation between the abortion issue, i.e. the women's health issue versus those, because it does seem that the Supreme Court Has recognized and chooses to recognize. I I don't want to call them constructs because they've always existed, but uh, you know has 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 evolved to recognize rights um, that you know weren't there uh, legally speaking back in the you know the 1700s. So, what is the difference there? Can you explain that to me? Yeah.
2: Okay. So let me. There's several things going on there. Uh, Let me um, try to answer um, the main threads of your question. So on the question of uh, well, if the court can overturn the precedents that protected abortion, why can't it overturn precedents on gay marriage or contraception or these other things, which are also connected to the same constitutional source, which is the 14th amendment due process clause. And if there's no due process right for an abortion, why is there a due process right for um, gay marriage, for example? And, and I think you're on to something. I think, um, and justice Thomas said, it said so as much now, um, Uh, Not all the conservatives on the court agreed with him, but if um, rights that were, um, let's say, found by the Supreme Court or created by the Supreme Court uh, can be unfound or uncreated by the Supreme Court. I mean, that's the basic logic of your question, and I think that's Mm -hmm. true. Imagine a conservative employing the progressive method of jurisprudence. So what does human dignity require regarding abortion? Well, a conservative would say, a pro-life conservative might say, well, obviously, we understand that uh, uh, all human beings are equal and the unborn are human beings. And therefore, human dignity, a progressive approach to the Constitution, a moral approach to the Constitution requires Roe to be overturned.
0: It's interesting. Yeah. There's I, nothing, I,
2: I, I, there's nothing yeah. in the progressive method that guarantees progressive results.
0: Yeah, that is really, that's fascinating and interesting. And what I'm hearing as we talk is that uh, you know, we, we so often look at this issue as a victory for one side and a loss for the other. But when you shift your perspective, you can immediately see how one decision you might immediately deem negative or you know, um, damaging for your side could be immediately flipped with just the tiniest shift of perspective. It's I, so that what you just said is something I, I really wouldn't have considered. Uh, does the media though, and I have to ask you this in all sincerity because there's a, a genuinely curious part of me from your perspective, does this yep. extensive coverage that the media does of stories like this end up playing a role somehow in encouraging
3: this? So the answer is sometimes, and, and some some media folks more than others. I, I espouse and belong to a belief that we call the no notoriety. Mm-hmm. And so- Yes, journalists have a job to do, and yes, you need to get the reporting correct and accurate. But once you identify the perpetrator of a crime like this, that's it. Should be referred to as the shooter mm-hmm. or the individual. That's number one.
0: Don't show a right? mugshot. Don't show right. or, or whatever photo. Say the right. name a couple times. Be done.
3: Because they're actually many of them are looking for notoriety, and that's part of what their revenge is and their their frustration that they do this. Number two, please for those outlets that still do this, it, it makes my blood boil. Uh, please don't tell me this is the deadliest shooting or the second most deadliest shooting or the biggest school shooting. Cause guess what? There's somebody else out there that may have trouble coping with life's challenges. And it's just another way for them to justify in their own way. Uh, to commit what they what they're looking to
0: do. It's a ranking. We're giving them a ranking system. We're giving them we a sick, twisted goal to achieve. Is that what you're saying?
3: Right, right. Uh-huh. And I, I, having said all this, Sonny, uh, my as you know, I do quite a bit of uh, media interviews, and uh, most outlets are very sensitive to this. And we've had some good conversations. There's a fine line. We want the reporting to be accurate, quick, because most of the time, media gets the information. Uh, before law enforcement does, I mean it's just a reality because kids have their phones or they take photos or we, we've seen this over and over again. So we need to get the word out, but what we don't need to do is dwell on it and kind of put these. Uh, let's focus on the victims. Right. Uh, which is really what this is about and not the perpetrators.
0: So this is the time that I want to get this information out there. What parents should be asking to their schools about safety? You brought up this good one first, which is ask what their active shooting protocol is, how they would respond right. in that, God forbid, worst case scenario. What else can parents be asking?
3: Number number two, do they drill and do they train the children? And how do they do that? That's another very fair and appropriate question, right? Uh, number three, Um, have them explain to them what their response process looks like as a faculty, uh, what happens if they have a troubled student, talk about it in the third person, uh, they can talk to you and should let you know that the resources that are in place, both outside of the school district and inside of the school district, uh, to deal with these. Another thing that's not talked about enough, um, many Many of these potential situations are stopped by the processes that I just talked to you about. And I think sometimes we have to blow our horn a little bit more and say, hey, we just stopped the school shooting today. Uh, as you know, I mean,
0: how many parents would immediately disenroll their children? And- well,
3: I mean, that's the other part of it. There is, yep. there but is I guess a challenge right- that goes with it. And, and right. they're community partners. And I mean that sincerely. So if we can if we can get back and get, regain some trust and respect and understand how the process is and, and stop the blame game, uh, certainly after the fact. Uh, and then the final piece that I'm not going to go too far down this road, but you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. We live in an environment where we weaponize politics and political beliefs. And so not only do we disagree now, we dislike to the point of hatred. And it actually contributes to some of the potential violent atmosphere that we have. That has got to stop. Our politicians have to stop it. uh, And and we just need to understand that. Because one of the things I've learned from managing threats to the pandemic is that threats haven't gone away, Sonny. They've just morphed. It's in some cases, if you happen to be uh, in an abusive relationship, which by the way, happens to schools, kids are victims of abusive relationships. Uh, you know, what happens if they have to go home, they're not going to school anymore and their abuser is sitting right next to them at the breakfast table. So there are things going on here that we have to recognize have changed and aren't necessarily going to change back and and reset. Uh, but again, it's all about information, understanding what you can do, how to do it, reasonable expectations of what our, our communities and our systems should be able to do. And then, uh, the, the final piece is on the uh, tragic chance that you or your family find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Pick some options. Know what those options are. And the final thing I'll say about that is these skills are transferable. I want, I want people talking to their families. Mm-hmm. You go to the mall. You go to a football game. Uh, you know, you go to a house of worship. I have clients that represent houses of worship that, that can be under threat. And so we, that's why I say this is a community issue because ultimately safety and security becomes an individual's person, uh, personal responsibility. Now age appropriate for children. Absolutely.
4: But if you take a step back, the thing that feeds the probiotics or the good bugs in your gut are called prebiotics. They're like food for your good bugs, right? And we get our prebiotics in our diet through a lot of different sources. And one of the signs that you're getting good prebiotics is brightly colored fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables. So trying to, you know, if you're a parent, if you're, if you're feeding your family, feeding yourself, trying to eat the rainbow, like getting as many different colors on your plate as possible, because it's not just about getting... Those bright colors, because those bright colors signify antioxidants, and they often signify something called polyphenols. And polyphenols, the science has been shown that they actually act as prebiotics, meaning they help to nourish and promote the growth of healthy strains of bacteria in your gut, and they help to inhibit the growth of less healthy strains. So having those brightly colored that when you look at like a pomegranate being bright red or you see blueberries being bright blue, like having the, the bright, the green tea, you know, when you see that matcha powder and it's a bright green, like that's nature's way of telling you that though, that there's a lot of polyphenols in those mm-hmm. foods. And so those plant-based bio nutrients are incredible for nourishing the gut microbiome. And a lot of kids in particular are super picky when it comes to what their diet is. You know, so trying to get as as diversity diversity in your diet, lots of different sources of plant based foods is so absolutely important. And then, yes, of course, having you know yogurt with live active cultures, you know, other foods that you could incorporate into your kid's diet that you know might be supportive of a, of a healthy microbiome are important. But I think the number one, two, and three are going to be to try to get those multiple sources of plant plant-based foods into your kid's diet every single day. And that goes for, for mommies as well.
0: I love that. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of things that we eat and put in our bodies, we're going to just pivot right to the products and we'll go back and talk more general skincare. I brought these on. So if you guys are listening to this podcast, make sure you pop over to the video either on Spotify or on YouTube, but I'm holding the two products in the line of Dr. Whitney bow beauty. And this is the moisturizer, uh, bow glow. It's a microbiome nourishing cream, love and adore it. But this is the bow grow, which I have found Such results from Dr. Beau already using for just under a month that I was surprised. I'm a little jaded when it comes to beauty products. I've tried a bunch and working in TV, I've had occasion to work with makeup artists and tried just about everything there is to try when it comes to skincare. But I have noticed when I'm using this and I'm going to drop it into my water while we're talking here, guys. But I have noticed... My skin actually looking clearer and brighter. Please tell me that I'm not crazy and that this is actually real. You're not crazy. And I also
4: love the fact that you've been using it consistently over time because when it comes to the gut skin connection, it's very rare that you're going to see a difference like overnight. You know, I Mm -hmm. think that consistency is so, so important. Uh, So what you're seeing and what you're experiencing is that the main ingredients there are polyphenols. So the polyphenols that we talked about, like sort of eating that diversity, you know, we, we of course it's always my first goal is to t- counsel my patients about, you know, incorporating food and, and healthy, you know, actual whole foods into their diet. But realistically speaking, like it's, it's impractical for a lot of people to get all of those different polyphenols in clinically studied doses you know, at the diver- the level of diversity, like the, the, how many different, you know, fruits and vegetables are you really eating every single day, even if you're making the effort. So when I developed Bocro, what I did was I put in eight different sources of polyphenols and I use the clinically studied doses that actually have been shown to support skin health.
5: The sun sets our body's rhythm, right? But then when we're exposed to man-made light sources at night, whether it's screens, light bulbs, etc. These can disrupt our body's natural production of melatonin and our sleep. And even during the day, excess amounts of these lights can create damage in our eyes, they can create headaches and fatigue. So the simplest solution was glasses to block this. But the thing was, they were all unattractive. Or if they were stylish, they blocked the wrong wavelengths of light, they were clear lenses. And so let's let's kind of go from there.
0: Yeah. As I wear my old man, um, regular blue blocking computer shades, there's so much I want to dive into, Matt. First, I will say that it's my belief that people inspired by their own medical stories or things that have happened to them personally tend to have some of the biggest breakthroughs because I feel like you're so driven to solve what's going on with you that you end up figuring out some important things in the process. So I appreciate you taking us through what led you to study the impact of light, because I think that, um, like I said, who would have thought that your personal journey would would inform so many other people? What do you think people get the most wrong when it comes to thinking about the sun? We talked before we got online. I'm in Florida and I have made a practice and have made it very public of slathering, not my body necessarily, but my face and sunscreen. And, you know, we go to the beach, we have our long rash guard suits as a family because I personally don't like to go too heavy on the sunscreens, the chemical sunscreens, but that's a different story. So I've made a practice of avoiding the light, but I heard you do this interview and it made me completely rethink things. Tell me how to strike a balance, especially in a state like Florida where there is constant sunshine between how much to expose myself to healthily and how much to cover myself up.
5: Yeah. Well, this is a great question. I appreciate you asking. So it's, it's really Uh, relevant to my my recent uh, learnings, let's say, I used to think based on the advice of some people I was following who are, let's say, more like extreme in this field that I should go out and bathe myself in the sun for excessive amounts of hours, get really red or pink and just like the more sun, the better. And I did this for a while. And ultimately, it didn't necessarily It didn't have the benefits, just like with the food obsession uh, that I had had that I had expected. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, again, there's many benefits to the sun. And and throughout that time, I was doing podcasts still and sharing the benefits. And I I believe that, you know, the core messages remain the same or very similar. However, there are definitely things that I would have to go, you know, modify. Everyone learns as they go. I think that's a natural good thing and progression. And one of the things I would modify, definitely, if I could go back and, and inform my younger self would be that you don't need insane excessive amounts of sun and more isn't always better, or at least more before burning isn't always better. There's never a recommendation to burn. It's always like get as much as you can shy of burning uh, you know, and, and charge up your battery.
0: I want to know what your research has shown as far as people of certain heritage or, or heritages or geographies that are more equipped to handle more sun exposure. I know it is not PC to say these days that our skin color matters, but it's true when it comes to exposure to sunlight, it's the commonly held belief that like you said, exposure to direct sunlight for darker skinned people, or even people like my people, who are from Southern Italy might have had more of a tolerance for that. Um, so let's break through the unpc of it all. And is there a connection based on your research between the levels of sunlight that we can and should expose ourselves to based on where our ancestors are from? And moreover, how do we figure out what that magic number is?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So there's not exactly a way to figure out what the magic number is and I question whether there is even exactly a magic number, but I get the essence of the question here. So with different uh, people in different areas, different areas of earth, yeah, the darker your skin, there's a a scale called the Fitzpatrick skin type, and there's one through six, lighter on the uh, one side of the scale, darker on the other side of the scale. Basically, so is the connection all right? All right, great. Yeah, we're good. So basically... The people who are, let's say, more equatorial or tropical, their, their ancestors evolved in this more equatorial or tropical place have evolved with these advantages that I was speaking about for those regions. So it's it's all good uh, having those advantages. You know, if you are have that darker skin, whether it's South American, uh, Central American or African or Asian, South Southern Asian, Indian, this is advantageous when you're in those areas. Now, it could become disadvantageous when you move to somewhere northerly, like Europe or North America. You can see many people with very dark skin, if they move to really northerly places, they develop jaundice, yellowing of the eyes because there's not enough of the light for their body to function really properly. So people who have darker skin in northerly places like the United States and Europe also develop vitamin D deficiency more quickly because the whole population is vitamin D deficient and the whole population is barely getting any sun. The people who, you know, who have the darker skin than those few minutes that they're outdoors between their car and the office and work and and the shop and so on, that tiny amount of sun that is more readily utilized by someone with lighter skin if they're not wearing SPF and sunglasses uh, is totally you know, significantly less if someone has a more protection. So Mm -hmm. it's just things people need to keep in mind when they're exposing themselves to sun. If you have darker skin, you just need more to get the same effect. Um, And again, there's a really sensible biological reason for this, because if you evolve in somewhere equatorial or tropical, there's so much light that you need the protection. So it can be really advantageous when you're living in an outdoor world, but in the indoor world, it can be disadvantageous.
0: I don't know who's been mailing in the script for us that we should be working full time or working from home and raising a baby and breastfeeding and giving a BJ to our husbands every night, you know, like yeah, what, no, like what, not. you, no. you got,
6: like something's no. got to stop it. Just stop it. You're ruining If you aren't those people every day who's like, uh, my husband, and I have sex every single night. No, you don't. No, you don't. Stop it. Like, yes, you want a healthy sex life and you want intimacy and all those things that do help drive your marriage, but stop ruining it for the rest of us and talking about your daily BJs. I don't want to hear about it. I don't, don't want to hear, wanna hear it. it. You know no. what it is? It's a water closet at 4 p.m. when all the kids are upstairs. <laughs> watching a movie that's real life that's it that's it yeah
0: uh, Oh, you know our standards really go down as moms but you know <laughs> all in the name of survival um okay we were talking we have to dig into this this is a whole subset of things and guys we're going to scare you off if your kid doesn't do this but I don't care because this is such good good gossip territory you're a dance mom Rachel I'm a dance mom. Okay, wait. You were just telling this crazy story. Speaking of moms, speaking of being judged by people, you're like a very well known person. So, guys, if you go to her Instagram, it's wine and cheeses, W H I N E N cheeses, it's um, on Instagram. I mean, you have a ton of followers. People know who you are. But basically, you do really document parts of your life. We don't see your kids a ton, but people know you. And as a result, people see you out in public and they're like, that's Rachel. So tell everybody what you were saying before we started taping.
6: So I was in my daughter's dance studio a couple, a few weeks ago, and I'm sitting with my girlfriend and we're talking and I always have my laptop with me because I'm always working. I mean, I'm sure you understand, like when you're running your own stuff, you're not getting paid if you're not working. So I am constantly working. My laptop is a very um, shameless plug with my picture and wine and cheese it's all over it and so I just you know I am always hustling and all of a sudden I s- he see this woman across the the way from me and I hear her say wine and cheese it's <gasps> and then I hear her say bitch disgusting all these things and I'm looking at my friend and I'm like she's talking about me like is this right mm-hmm. now
0: wait and- in the same room let me just clarify room.
6: Same room, right across from me. And I'm like, this can't be real life. It can't be. And I have a big mouth. I do, but I'm not a mean girl. I am super kind. I am very easy to get along with. I have a a big network of girlfriends. I'm a girl's girl. Like I'm, I'm not trying to like you know, sound like cocky, but I'm very, I'm a delight is what I'm saying. I, <laughs> I believe a
0: you. Listen, so, I'm on your side, girl. Go.
6: <laughs> so I'm listening and I'm like, this can't be real. And I'm trying really hard to figure out. Cause it might, my, my gut, my gut wants to stand up and walk over and be like, I, can, is there something wrong? Like I wanted to be confrontational about it, but, Part of me is thinking, okay, there's many reasons I can't do that. Number one, I'm in my child's dance studio. There's four-year-olds walking around with tutus and tap shoes on. And like, is this the time and place to get into a mom argument? Like, that's not my style. Number two, I am very aware that people are cell phone crazy now they take out their cameras to record everything you have a 10 year old i don't know if they have a phone or not but my my older child has a phone i've seen fights at school on tiktok all these things and mm-hmm. i'm like do i want to be the next person that gets up and starts confronting this woman and then i'm videotapes and i look like the aggressor and it's all over social media like not that i take up that much importance but people do know who i am down here i do have a local following and i am recognized in public it happens but i was so fearful of what the consequences would be even though i was the victim in this situation situation that I decided in that moment, you know what, this is going to be a teachable moment for my daughters. It's going to be a teachable moment for moms. Hopefully I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to think about this for a second. And then of course I took out my cell phone and I wrote a passive aggressive meme. (laughs) the only way to fight back these days only way to fight back and I didn't name anyone I didn't all I said basically was exactly what happened I'm sitting in my daughter's dance studio and there's a mother across from me talking about me right in front of my face using words like bitch and disgusting and people wonder why we have a mean girl epidemic and it I mean, that went so viral. People were commenting. Everyone was going crazy. I was getting DMs. And I was just like, you know what? I've, everyone needs to learn from this. Like, this is, this is going to change something. Someone's behavior is going to change. The next day, the girl who I, I know peripherally um, called me. She got my number and called me. <gasps> and she said, I am sorry. You are a thousand percent right. I did exactly what you said. Uh, my friend saw your post and asked me if I'd seen it and I hadn't. And I looked at it and I read it and I stopped for a second and I said, She's right. I did those things. And she profusely apologized. She said, I was fighting someone else's battle. Um, she's connected to someone who really doesn't like me for ridiculous reasons. And it's okay. Everyone doesn't have to like me, but we have to be kind. Um, and she basically said, I I was so out of line. Um, it was very mean girl behavior. I'm embarrassed. I'm mortified. And all I can do is profusely apologize. And I hope you'll accept my apology. I had two choices. I could have been like, no, I don't accept it. You know, yeah, you're right. rude. Or I could say, you know what? We all fall down. We all fail. And if you're going to own it. It's not easy to make a phone call like that. It's not. That's a very hard thing to do for your pride, for it is. It's I don't care if anyone thinks that apologizing is always the right thing. It that's a hard phone call to make. So the fact that she did it, I gained a lot of respect for her. I I said, you know, I I accept your apology and we're good. Let's let's move forward. Let's use this as a teachable moment and we saw each other the next week. We hugged. It was fine and it's good. It's all good. <laughs>
0: think of the... Uh, I was going to insert some celebrity's name here who we know has had plastic surgery but has refused to admit it, but I'm, I'm sure you're thinking of the same people I have. What do you think of that level of celebrity who doesn't acknowledge the work they've done or the plastic yeah. surgery or procedures they've done and not only doesn't address it generally speaking, but outright denies it when directly asked?
7: You know... <sighs> I, I actually will say recently, so you know I, I don't know if you, you know this, but while I was building half the story, I had the ability to help build a non-alcoholic beverage brand, which Bella Hadid wound up coming in to be the co-founder of, and she recently, last year, there was like always a lot of speculation around her in that and in a vogue article she had like a huge spread in vogue and it was basically about her mental health journey and she actually did address getting a nose job and talked about how she regretted it as a young person in hollywood because what it did is actually pulled her further from her cultural identity and i think that you know I think that maybe when I heard her story and when she shared it that way, I started to have this perspective shift in realizing maybe some of these women, as they become like 25, 26, 27, which is still young, but more engaged mentally, just due to your brain develop, maybe some of them are feeling shame and guilt around that mm-hmm. decision from a young age. And maybe they don't, they're still like trying to address it themselves before they address it with the world. And I think there's right. also power to that. Um, and and giving, and that's one thing that I've learned too, is like, I think as a younger person, you're emotionally more reactive and social media pushes you to kind of, when you feel something, go spit it out to the world. But I think there's also power in teaching young people to say, hey, reflect on it, take a right. beat, understand it within before you share that story. And so, you know, that's just like, I guess something I've learned. And and like, it, it's probably not the answer you were expecting, but I do think Sometimes there's more than the story that we see. And there's always so much pressure on young celebrities to like immediately spill the tea, do this, do that. And they might just need time to reflect too.
0: That's so true. And 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 privacy is... A rarity. It's a treasure these days, right? And people are really open sometimes on their social media pages yeah. in sharing their children's stories, their children's you know particular journeys or what they're dealing with, and showing the behind the scenes. And I can't tell you how many times, as a business leader, people have said, "Sunny, people want to see your kids," or people want to, and I'm like. But I don't want people to see my kids. Not too much, at least, you know. And what you're saying, Lars, is really hitting because these are questions we confront as individuals on our own behalf, but also on behalf of our children until they are of age to decide how they want to show up in the world. So I don't want to sound like a granny, but I do always try to encourage people, especially younger people who are making that transition like I did from a more traditional media where we didn't really talk about ourselves or our family, which is maybe a little sort of boring in some ways, but when they're coming into the digital space to really think about that, what will your child think in five, 10, 15 years? I
7: I love that you're bringing this up and here's why. I think, you know, one, so for example, right now there's a bill on the table and it's, you know, the, the kids online safety act and we're actually helping work, work through that. And and, and it's a federal legislation. And it's basically, you know, putting onus on the tech companies to give parents the tools that they need um, to help prevent kids negative experiences online, protect protect them from from harm, and also open up sort of the black box algorithm. So share data with nonprofits, like Half the Story, that will ultimately help us build programming to support kids. And although, yes, we have to create accountability on the tech platform side. Um, I always find it really interesting when we do our education because we have a program where we implement education for middle schools and high schools and districts. And then oftentimes we'll offer a supplementary parent and educator or staff training. And, you know, I find it interesting because parents come in and they're like, well, how do we protect our kids? How do we do this? How do you do that? And then, you know, you ask the question of the parents, which is, who is the number one person responsible for your children's exposure on the internet? And the answer is the parents in most mm-hmm. times, because they're sharing photos of their kids naked in the bathtub. And as middle schoolers and high schoolers, you know, kids will like pull up stuff like that and then share it with the world. And that becomes a vehicle for bullying. And I don't think that parents realize that, that it's such a young age, like, and that's why celebrities put emojis on their kids' faces. Why? Because celebrities are already, taking, you know, they're like bait for media and they don't want their kids to be that bait. And that's their way of at least trying to protect them uh, in the world we're living in. And and it gets super complicated, like, you know, especially for kids with different identities and backgrounds and sort of styles, like, you know, if a girl's like a tomboy and her mom dressed her in princess dresses growing up, like there's identity things that come Mm -hmm. up, especially in adolescence that is complicated. And so I guess like for parents that are listening to this really, really, really think and have conversations with your partner and your family and your parents, because we know grandparents, I always joke. I'm like the Gen Xers love to, the way they use <laughs> social media is a bit problematic.
0: Uh, um, oversharers much? Yeah. Yeah.
7: The oversharers like blasting nude pics of babies on Facebook <laughs> is uh, very much so the norm. And I think in the same way that you have to have hard conversations with your parents when you're establishing your norms with your children, which might differ. You have to have those conversations, not just about what it looks like offline, but what that looks like online because that digital world has become such a big part of life milestones.
0: What are some of the more popular procedures, Dr. Devgan, that you're seeing people ask for these days?
8: Gosh, I think that, um, you know, what, Is really popular right now is um, facelifts and necklifts at younger ages. I think that patients are seeking procedures just before they urgently need them. And I think this idea of wanting to maintain a long corridor of youth and look basically the same for the entire period of time between like age 25 to 60 That idea is trending right now. And
0: what do you personally think of that? Like, what does Laura, the person think of like, is, does it weird you out to see people like freeze in time essentially and have the same face? Is, Is it like a hallmark of great work? And you're like, Oh, this is awesome. Or are you kind of like, okay, this is a little bit weird too, because no one is aging these days.
8: No, I mean, I think when it's done well in an elegant manner, I think it's amazing. Um, I think, um, I think there is beauty in aging and I never try to eliminate signs of aging in my patients and I actually think that in what I do I think identity is more important than me, and I think that identity is more important than youth so I never try to literally stop the clock but I do appreciate this idea and you know maybe it's my own mortality that's speaking here but I do appreciate the idea that um, that, you know, I don't want to get old either. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like I feel better and look better than I did when I was 25. And um, I, I want to age backward. I want to live forever. I want to be around when my grandchildren have children. Um, and so I get that people want to have that forever young feeling but at the same time i don't want to be someone who is enabling people you know filling in every wrinkle and crap yeah. and you know eliminating every perfection and kind of perseverating on all their flaws and picking apart their own faces and so i i think that there's um, there's a healthy balance where we want to all feel good about ourselves, um, but we have to do it in a way that makes sense.
0: Do you see my photo bomber for people? Just my daughter has decided to walk into the frame. Can you go with daddy, please? Okay, please <laughs> <sorry>. so cute. <laughs> I can't. I honestly can't even hide. Hey, go with daddy, please. I'm going to text daddy to tell him to come and get you. Cecilia. Okay. Um, so, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, the early facelift. Okay. So when you say people are seeking this out, is there a general time frame? I know everybody ages differently, but maybe people coming in say in their what early forties versus when they used to come in in their fifties, like what if you had to put a number on it?
8: Yeah, I would say, um, facelifts in their forties for sure. Yeah.
0: Do you think, is that a good idea or is there the potential for that to like become lax again? And then you have to do it again.
8: When we do a surgical procedure we're turning back the clock but we're not stopping it from ticking. And so we're resetting the pace at which you age and so mm. you think about yourself and your lifestyle and if you're going to get really great quality adjusted life years from your 40s and that's a decade that you're going to really enjoy going on family vacations and being on the beach and like really get a lot out of your life, then it can make a lot of sense. And you might really enjoy that more than the decade that comes from your 60s or your 70s. And so it's a really personal question. I think there's no wrong answer. The main couple of reasons in my practice why patients consider procedures, smaller procedures at earlier ages are... Um, fourfold. First of all, if you do a surgical procedure at an earlier age, you have a better healing propensity. Second of all, you're going to have a shorter scar. Um, Third, you're going to have a less dramatic before and after. And um, fourth, you're likely to have a faster overall recovery time. And so those are typically the reasons why people consider procedures earlier. And I would say kind of a fifth reason is that quality adjusted life years reason, Um, which is like, sometimes people will argue that, you know, maybe they're going to enjoy their 40s decade, they're going to be a little more active than maybe -hmm. maybe they're going to be on more like active vacations than they would be in their 70s decade. But I don't I don't really know, but I hear people say stuff like that. The flip side of the coin, you know, why you might consider waiting till your 60s or your 70s for, for your face and neck lift is that, you know, first of all, economics. Um, if you think that maybe you only want to have one face or neck lift in your life, um, sometimes people will say, and i only want to do this once so i'm going to wait for a big landmark birthday and i'm going to do this when i turn 65 so that it lasts um second sometimes people say listen I'm going to do this once. So I want it to be a big dramatic before and after because I want to tell all my friends, I want to have that huge turkey neck, and then I want it to go away. And I want there to be a payoff. I don't want it to be a subtle result. So it's the exact opposite reason. Um, And then third, um, sometimes people are just not sure. And so they defer the decision till later. So those are kind of the two arguments. And I think, you know, it's sort of like, any big life decision, like, are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? What will your job be? It's a very personal decision. And on some level, you have to just make it for yourself.
0: It has been an amazing year, and if you have listened to even one episode, I'm really grateful for you having been here. I hope to bring you, and I know we will be bringing you more amazing guests in 2023. We'll continue to um, inform and entertain and inspire, and I would love to hear from you. So if you're hearing this right now, please send me an email or a message. Let me know the type of guests that you want to hear from or the type of solo episodes that you want to hear Um We've done a really f- a fun, uh, really fun few solo episodes touching on some more lighthearted things over the past month, and I really enjoyed that. So send me a message on Instagram at SunnyAbbada or go ahead and just shoot me an email, sunny at sunnyabatta.com and let me know your thoughts.